This is Speak Out Socialists, a podcast produced by Speak Out Now. We are a revolutionary socialist group. Our website is speakoutsocialists.org. You can find us on Facebook at Speak Out Now or on Instagram and Twitter at Rev Socialists. These are the reports from September 3rd to September 12th. California fires, the climate disruption we were warned about. As if the COVID pandemic wasn't enough for Californians to deal with, the state is now seeing record-breaking heat waves, wildfires, and smoke. Los Angeles County saw its highest ever recorded temperature of 121 degrees Fahrenheit in Woodland Hills, with many other Californian cities surpassing old records. Riverside hit 117. Chino, 121. Sacramento smashed its previous high with a sweltering 109. This is the kind of climate disruption we've been warned about. With the heat came an intensification of the fires already consuming parts of California. Two of the three largest fires in California's history are now burning in the Bay Area. According to Cal Fire, on Sunday more than two million acres had burned through the state since the first of the year. This is the most the state has seen since it started keeping track in 1987. One fire, which started in Fresno, occurred because the heat was so intense it started its own thunderstorm. The storm's rising column of air launched not only ash, but fire debris up to one foot in diameter. And we have a long way to go before the end of the fire season. Unusually strong winds have exacerbated the fires. They have also spread smoke throughout California and neighboring states, blanketing areas with ash. And ash is the last thing we need in a respiratory pandemic. Plus, where do people who have little access to air conditioning or air purification go to escape smoke when smoke shelters are unsafe because of COVID-19? Other states are also facing historic fires and levels of smoke. In parts of Oregon, smoke blanketed the skies, turning them an apocalyptic orange. One town in Washington lost 80% of its structures to fire. In Colorado, there was a wildfire filling the skies with smoke and ash one day, and the next there was snow on the ground with temperatures plunging more than 50 degrees. Clearly, these freak weather conditions are not normal. Yet they're only a glimpse of the hellish future we're going to face if we don't take climate change seriously. If we want an increase in extreme fire weather, more heat waves, and higher death tolls, we should sit back and watch the flames. But if we want to prevent this disastrous future, we must organize and fight back against the conditions that got us here in the first place. Together we can get rid of the capitalist system for good. Our lives and the future of our life on the planet depend on it. Rochester Protesters demand justice. Daniel Prude, a black man visiting relatives in Rochester, New York, died at the hands of Rochester police after being arrested on March 17, 2020. His family has been trying to get justice ever since. It took nearly six months for Prude's family to obtain a copy of the police video of his arrest. The video shows that police officers threw him to the ground, pressed down on his chest, and forced a so-called spit mask over his head. The combination of these brutal actions suffocated Daniel Prude. He was taken off life support five days later. Back in March, Rochester police claimed that Prude had died from a dose of PCP. In April, an internal police investigation exonerated the police. The coroner's report, however, designated Prude's death as a homicide, 
resulting from asphyxiation while held in a prone position. This report was ignored by state and local officials until the Prude family made the video of his arrest public. New York state officials knew of the coroner's report at least by June 6th, but the New York state's attorney only started a grand jury investigation after the videos and coroner's report became public. Rochester has been rocked by nightly demonstrations, sometimes numbering several thousand marchers. Police have attacked demonstrators with tear gas, baton charges, and barrages of pepper balls. Dozens of demonstrators have been arrested. Some have been hospitalized. And, doubling down on covering up to avoid accountability, Rochester police are taping over their badge numbers and names, a practice officially authorized by the Rochester Police Department. As a consequence of public outrage, all of the top Rochester police commanders have resigned. But the cops directly involved in Prude's death are still receiving their full paychecks while investigations continue. Is it any wonder more and more people are saying policing as we know it has to go? In Rochester, Kenosha, Portland, Louisville, Minneapolis, and hundreds of other places around the country in the last few months, people have taken to the streets and have gotten killer cops and their commanders fired, forced to resign, and even charged with murder for doing the brutal, racist things they have always done. Organizing our numbers to say no more is the only way to get even a little justice in this society. Will public transportation survive the pandemic? Before COVID-19, the New York Metropolitan Transit Authority served 8 million people daily. Since COVID-19, it's losing $200 million per week and suddenly has a predicted deficit of $16 billion over four years. New Jersey Transit's deficit over five years is $6 billion. San Francisco's SFMTA, Chicago's CTA, Philadelphia's SEPTA, the Los Angeles Metro, and Seattle's King County Transit are all facing similar budget crises. So are systems in places like Baltimore, Miami, Denver, New Orleans, Cleveland, and more. Public transportation in the United States has always been underfunded, but COVID-19 led to a steep drop in ridership and revenue. New York MTA lost 92% of its usual ridership. Without massive infusions of funding, these transit systems will soon institute massive layoffs, reduce service, and perhaps shut down some services altogether. Perennial underfunding plus the virus may be the beginning of what one official called a transit death spiral. The money exists to fund these systems, but in states that do have the money, like New York, powerful politicians, both Democrats and Republicans, refuse to even discuss raising taxes on the wealthy to meet our needs. On the national level, a Congress that has never adequately supported public transportation is also refusing to do what is necessary. This means yet another crisis for working people. How will people get to work safely if there aren't enough drivers and conductors, or if fewer buses mean more crowding? How will people get to work at all if train and bus service continues to shrink? In the capitalist economic system, we can be sure of only one thing. The 1% doesn't care. In fact, if they can profit from the demise of public transportation, they will. We need to envision a different world, one in which what humans need actually matters, instead of coming second to profit. Worst year ever? It's not 2020, it's capitalism. It seems that not a day goes by without someone complaining about 2020 being the worst year ever. And it is true that this year has earned that title for many of us. Starting with a pandemic, more horrifying racist murders by police, record-breaking fires in California, record-breaking number of storms in the Atlantic, massive unemployment, and the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression. Yes, 2020 has truly been the worst year that most of us can remember. 
But as much as we would like to attribute all this chaos to a particular time and space, and hope that 2021 will come to change our lives for the better, we have to recognize that these crises have nothing to do with what year we are in, but with the economic system that governs our lives. Let's start with the pandemic. For years, epidemiologists had been warning about the possibility of a pandemic. But instead of heeding these warnings and reducing the risk factors such as mass deforestation and destructive agricultural practices, the capitalists have continued full steam into the global health crisis that we find ourselves in now. Not only did the people in power completely fail at preventing this pandemic, but they have also completely mismanaged it. Instead of what a reasonable society would do, which is to pool its resources to help the majority, this capitalist society has left millions to fend for themselves while a tiny group of people amass an exorbitant amount of money and resources. In the U.S. alone, while 40 million people have filed for unemployment, billionaires have increased their net worth by $637 billion. If this deadly virus wasn't enough of a threat, the racism of this society continues to destroy lives in this country. So far this year, 660 people have been killed by the police, with black people dying this way at more than twice the rate of whites. This racist violence is no accident, and not an issue of just a few bad apples in the police. The police as an institution exists to ensure the continuation of capitalism, which uses racism to divide the working class majority when it could be uniting against the actual enemy, the capitalists. And how can we ignore the fact that climate change is causing more extreme climatic events each year? California fires have burned 1.6 million acres, at a rate to surpass the 1.8 million acres burned during 2018, the worst fire season ever recorded. Meanwhile, the Atlantic Ocean is predicted to experience 25 named storms in a year, something that hasn't been forecasted ever before. But no matter how much scientists sound the alarm bells that global warming is being caused and accelerated by human activity, the capitalist economic system is not going to change course and stop prioritizing profits. It literally can't without ceasing to exist. So, if 2020 wins the award for worst year ever, so long as we are living under capitalism, sadly, it could easily lose that award to 2021. Chadwick Boseman's untimely death highlights racial health disparities. Black people were able to see themselves as superheroes on the big screen in a mainstream blockbuster for the first time two years ago, with the release of Black Panther. Actor Chadwick Boseman played the lead, a superhero who protects the technologically ultra-advanced African nation of Wakanda from destruction by outside forces. It was the first mainstream superhero film to feature a prominently black cast, painting the fictional African nation as an example to be looked up to and emulated around the world. These communities weren't downtrodden and dependent on foreign saviors, a narrative still popular today. Rather, they were powerful and something to aspire to, a depiction that showed the possibilities of black representation in mainstream media. What the world didn't know at the time was that Bozeman had been battling cancer. He was diagnosed in 2016 with stage 3 colon cancer and died four years later after it had progressed to stage 4. He filmed a number of movies between surgeries and chemotherapy treatments, all without the public knowing. Reflecting on the reasons why his battle with cancer was kept so private is its own topic. Health conditions are often stigmatized, and cancer is specifically stigmatized more in men and within ethnic minorities. The individualism of our society often places personal blame on those affected, though many of the factors that contribute to disease or cancer are societal, not individual. African Americans are more likely to die from colon cancer than any other ethnic group in the country. And overall cancer rates are higher among black people than white, 
according to the American Cancer Society. In fact, black people in the U.S. have the highest infant mortality rate and the highest age-adjusted death rate. It's estimated that more than 80,000 excess deaths are related to these health disparities, making being black a leading cause of death. And now black people in the U.S. are also dealing with higher rates of COVID-related deaths. The reason it took until 2018 for a black person to be seen as a superhero in mainstream society is the same reason we see black people dying at higher rates. These statistics symbolize the illness of capitalism that infects black people at alarmingly higher rates. Black people still live under the legacy of slavery, which used race to justify its existence. Black people are forced to live with racism every day, which is used to divide working people and give white workers a larger portion of the crumbs from the capitalist's table. Add in higher unemployment rates, lower health, higher participation in high-risk jobs, lower insurance coverage, and higher poverty rates, and of course you're going to see a society in which black people face worse health outcomes. The particulars of Bozeman's situation are unknown, and he does not represent the reality of every black American. But his untimely death from a disease that hits black people the hardest is a good opportunity to have a conversation about why these racial health disparities exist in the first place. Black people are not inherently sicker, but the system of capitalism with its racial disparities in healthcare, education, income, housing, and so many other factors of quality of life means that cancer is a disproportionate threat in the black community. Capitalism itself is a cancer that we must kill before it kills us especially our black brothers and sisters. The Battle of Blair Mountain, a workers' uprising worth remembering on Labor Day. Labor Day is a holiday in the United States that supposedly celebrates the achievements and history of working people. Some politicians and union officials may give speeches celebrating the efforts of the nation's working people. For those who have jobs right now, it may mean a day off to relax and try to forget about how crazy 2020 has been so far. Some will still work or volunteer to go in to get overtime. There may not seem like a lot to celebrate right now. There are many challenges facing the working class in the U.S. and around the world. The health crisis created by the failure to respond to COVID-19 shows no sign of slowing down and will soon have killed 200,000 people in the U.S. and 900,000 in total around the world. Mass layoffs and threats of evictions will continue as a consequence of the economic crisis that the pandemic has helped accelerate. At the same time, inequality grows larger each day, symbolized by Jeff Bezos becoming the first person ever whose personal wealth was $200 billion. We may not know it or be taught it in school, but the working class has a rich tradition of struggling against the challenges it faced in each generation. Labor Day can serve to remind us that we should learn from our history as much as possible. One struggle we can learn from was the struggle of coal miners that led to the Battle of Blair Mountain almost 100 years ago in West Virginia. To help understand the heroic nature of their struggle, it's important to understand what life was like in the coal fields of West Virginia in the late 1800s and early 1900s. West Virginia was one of the coal mining capitals of the world at this time, as massive investments in coal production were made in this region after the Industrial Revolution. All aspects of life in West Virginia were run by coal barons. They owned all the mines, the land, and controlled the politicians who ran the state. They used the forces of the government and private armies to enforce the brutal exploitation of workers. Because the mine owners owned most of the land near the mines, they had a monopoly in the region. If miners were going to work in the coal fields, they and their families were forced to live in company towns near the mines. 
Miners had to rent out their houses, buy their food, and buy coal they had mined to heat their houses from the bosses who got rich from their back-breaking and dangerous work. In fact, bosses did not even pay miners with real money. They were paid in credits that could only be used to buy life's necessities from the bosses' stores. Many ended the month with nothing left. Others needed to go into debt to the coal companies because payments for rent and food didn't stop when the coal bosses reduced workers' hours or closed the mines for a while. In addition to this, there were no safety measures in place. Many died in the mines in industrial accidents. Others died of black lung disease from inhaling coal dust all day. The disease was caused by coal particles building up in the lungs of miners. It slowly turned their lungs black and caused them to stop working over time. Because of this, for many, years of working in the mines was like dying a slow death. Workers could be fired any time, and when they were hired, they had to sign contracts saying they wouldn't try to organize or unionize. Those who tried to organize were either fired, intimidated with violence, or killed. Facing these conditions, miners began to struggle and organize themselves in mines across coal country. They organized militant strikes to improve their conditions, and some miners fought for the right to union representation and collective bargaining through the United Mine Workers Union, which was founded in 1890. Strikes and efforts to organize were often brutally repressed. West Virginia often saw periods of open-class warfare, with several armed confrontations taking place between striking miners trying to improve their conditions and either private armies funded by the coal bosses or forces of the state seeking to stop them. Because of this, the series of struggles that took place in the period between 1912 and 1921 are known as the West Virginia Mine Wars. The 1921 Battle of Blair Mountain was the most dramatic and heroic of these struggles and remains the largest armed uprising of the working class in U.S. history. A combination of events led to this uprising. In the spring of 1920, private goons hired by the coal companies were sent in to break a strike of coal miners in Matawan, a town in the southwestern part of West Virginia. One of their tactics to break the strike was to forcibly evict miners and their families from their homes in the company towns, leaving them homeless. The local sheriff in Matawan at the time, Sid Hatfield, was supportive of the miners' struggle and did not believe the private armies had any business evicting the miners. After confronting them, Hatfield and a group of miners got into a battle with the private goons, killing several of them. This event boosted the spirits of the miners as it proved that people could stand up against the coal goons. In the aftermath of this event, coal bosses conspired with the state government to capture Hatfield and workers who participated in the gunfight and try them for murder. Hatfield was charged with murder but was acquitted, which further infuriated the coal bosses. After this, the bosses worked with the state to frame Hatfield with a bogus charge that he tried to destroy mine property. As Hatfield arrived at court to contest this charge, he was shot dead in front of the courthouse by private goons paid by the bosses. Hatfield was seen as a hero and a symbol for the miners that it was possible to fight back. When he was murdered, it was the straw that broke the camel's back for them. Fed up with this murder and the continued repression of their organizing efforts, at least 10,000 miners, many veterans of World War I, organized to march from Charleston, the capital of West Virginia, into the southwestern coal fields to support the miners in their fight against the coal bosses in this region. After starting the march, miners commandeered multiple freight trains to help transport miners and to help strengthen their forces, knowing they would be met with violence. The march was met by a private army of 3,000 goons funded and organized by the coal barons who set up heavy weaponry and machine guns on the strategic high ground of nearby Blair Mountain. The goons chose this spot to confront the miners because they knew the miners would be vulnerable on this part of their march route. 
The private army's goal was to stop them at all costs, and they were given orders to shoot to kill any miners who dared continue. From August 25th to September 2nd, 1921, open-class warfare broke out on Blair Mountain. In the course of the battle, the federal government showed which class it exists to defend by sending 17,000 military and National Guard troops to reinforce the private army and defeat the miners militarily. In the course of the fighting, the U.S. military also collaborated with the coal bosses to drop poison gas and bombs like those used during World War I on the fighting miners. Realizing they could not defeat the forces arrayed against them, the miners retreated. Knowing the government would likely find them and confiscate their weapons, many miners secretly hid their weapons and ammunition near Blair Mountain to be used for fights to come. Historians and archaeologists in the region still find weapons and ammunition on the mountain to this day. After the dust settled, dozens of miners had been killed, as well as dozens from the private militias and army. In the years that followed, hundreds of miners that participated in the rebellion were arrested and some were convicted of murder or treason. This relatively unknown piece of workers' history shows the heroic efforts miners took to defend themselves and challenge their exploitation. It also shows the brutal repression the bosses and government will carry out to maintain their system of exploitation. To this day, traditions and stories like these live on in miners' families. On Labor Day, we should remember the importance of learning and transmitting the rich history of the working class to the next generation, because it is our history, too. We can learn from the miners and others who came before us, who relied on their own forces and determination to stand against the oppression they faced. In doing so, we can begin to imagine mobilizing our collective power in the face of a global pandemic, an economic crisis, and brutal systemic racism. In doing so, we can begin to think about the prospects we have to determine our own future. Attica Prison Revolt. The struggle against injustice continues. Today, the coronavirus is officially responsible for over 100,000 cases and the deaths of more than 900 people imprisoned in the U.S. Prisoners who are infected with the virus have been moved into facilities without known cases, causing widespread outbreaks. Quarantine is impossible due to overcrowded conditions. The inhumane conditions facing those locked in prisons across the U.S. are not new. Decades ago, the civil rights and black power movements generated a spirit of revolt that rippled through U.S. society and included a fight against the intolerable conditions that prisoners faced. The 1971 murder of George Jackson by prison guards in San Quentin State Prison in California was the spark that unleashed the anger in prisons across the country. Jackson was a black revolutionary who had joined the Black Panther Party while serving an indeterminate sentence of one year to life for involvement in a robbery when he was 18. The uprising in the Attica Correctional Facility in New York in September of 1971 was an important part of this wave of outrage. Conditions in Attica were horrendous. A facility built for 1,200 was crammed with 2,225 inmates. Prisoners had only one shower per week and one roll of toilet paper per month. About 54% of the inmates were black, but all of the prison guards were white. Racism and violence were a regular part of life in Attica. On September 9, 1971, prisoners freed an inmate who was to be detained in his cell. Then more than a thousand prisoners took control of the prison, taking 42 staff hostage. The prisoners said, We are men, we are not beasts, and we do not intend to be beaten or driven as such. The entire prison populace, that means each and every one of us here, have set forth to change forever the ruthless brutalization and disregard for the lives of the prisoners here and throughout the United States. What has happened here is but the sound before the fury of those who are oppressed. The prisoners organized into communities for security, food distribution, waste disposal, protection of the hostages, 
and a negotiation team. Despite past racial tensions in the prison, there was a sense of unity. One black striker said, I never thought whites could really get it on. I actually cried. It was so close. Everyone was so together. Negotiations were held in an open and democratic manner, with prisoner representatives relaying information to the other prisoners in the yard. Despite widespread international attention and support, prison officials refused to budge on the question of prisoner demands. Those in power did not want the example of this prison uprising to continue and inspire others to join the struggle. After four days of negotiations between inmate representatives and prison officials, Nelson Rockefeller, the governor of New York, who had refused to participate in negotiations, ordered the retaking of the prison. Police were mobilized with shotguns, high-caliber rifles, and tear gas. No warning was given. They opened fire on those in the prison yard. Their vicious onslaught resulted in the deaths of 33 prisoners, the wounding of another 85, and the deaths of 10 guards and prison employees. Some of the leaders were targeted and were shot while surrendering. Survivors were beaten with nightsticks and forced to crawl naked through broken glass. The press was banned from the area and only learned of the brutality through leaked reports by police and survivors. The Attica prison uprising showed the potential for people to come together and fight for justice and basic human dignity, even in the worst conditions. For this reason, Attica remains a symbol of resistance, an example to be remembered and honored to this day. Herd Immunity, a Game of Chance Lately, there's been a lot of talk about herd immunity in relation to COVID-19. But what is herd immunity, and what does it mean in relation to COVID-19? Can we depend on herd immunity to protect us while a viable vaccine is still likely many months away? Herd immunity refers to a reduction in the risk of contracting a virus that occurs when a significant portion of a population has become immune to this virus because it was previously exposed or vaccinated. If this significant proportion is immune, and thus not carrying the infection, susceptible individuals are much less likely to come into contact with infected individuals. Johns Hopkins University states that we would need at least 70% of the population, or about 200 million infections in the U.S., to achieve herd immunity for COVID-19. What a cost! This means that we would allow the virus to flow through the population, eliminating those who are most susceptible, in order to leave the rest with antibodies in their bloodstream. At the current infection and death rates we're seeing, this would mean the U.S. population would not achieve herd immunity before 2021, and by then, over half a million Americans would be dead because of the coronavirus. They tried this in Sweden, and Sweden has a terribly high death rate from the coronavirus, double the rate of its neighbors in Scandinavia. Scott Atlas, a new appointee in Trump's coronavirus task force, is proposing policies that put our lives at risk. He's a supporter of allowing for the development of herd immunity in lieu of lockdowns or closing schools or businesses. He says that isolation and shelter in place is actually what's killing people and advocates for the development of herd immunity as a way to protect from COVID-19 instead. Pushing this narrative is wildly irresponsible and just asking for U.S. death rates to skyrocket. This clearly isn't an approach with a focus on the health and safety of the population. This is an approach that prioritizes corporate profits and the economy over the lives of people in this country. The only safe way to achieve herd immunity is through an effective vaccine, given to everyone who is able to receive it. New York City has big problems, and Wall Street and the politicians make them worse. New York City was the first place where COVID reached critical proportions in the U.S. Now it threatens to be the first city where public services collapse thanks to the economic costs of the pandemic. New York City finances were fragile well before the pandemic, 
Trump's threat on August 31st to cut off funds for New York would pitch the city into crisis. But he is not the only politician playing games at the expense of New York City's people. New York State and city politicians have for years refused to tax the great concentrations of wealth in Wall Street banks. Much of the 1% calls New York City home. Consequently, both the Democrats and the Republicans have refused for decades to tax the wealthy and the big corporations to adequately fund the subways, public schools, and public health services the rest of us depend on. When the wealthy don't pay what they should, the rest of us bankroll them. And when COVID hit, these already strained public services were hit the hardest. The rate of COVID infection has fallen and stayed relatively low for some time in New York City. After nearly six months of lockdown, everyone is eager to open up the economy. To do this safely requires step-by-step -step measures after putting in place reliable protections to prevent a new spike in COVID. Instead of finding ways of bolstering the programs and services needed to carry through a safe reopening, New York politicians are threatening layoffs of 20% of the city's workforce and a partial shutdown of the subway system. On top of that, plans for the start of the school year are in chaos. New York City Mayor de Blasio is proposing a hybrid school week where kids learn remotely at home some days. The rest of the week they would receive instruction face-to-face -face in socially distanced classrooms. Parents and teachers are up in arms, knowing that the city has not supplied the internet and computer resources to make remote learning work. Nor has the city put the necessary effort into readying the school buildings to safely bring students and teachers together by, for example, upgrading the ventilation systems, especially in older buildings. Many younger students are normally bused to school. School bus drivers say the city has no idea how to make this work with a hybrid school week. The hybrid system seems like the worst possible approach to reopening schools. Rebellious teachers last week forced their union leaders to meet with city hall officials. Nothing was decided except to postpone the beginning of the school year for two weeks, solving nothing. Meanwhile, the union leaders representing other city workers threatened with layoffs asked the mayor to wait a month to see if together they could successfully lobby for more funds. The union leaders said layoffs should only be a quote-unquote last resort. But, like the politicians, they know where the money is. New York City's politicians and union leaders have made it clear they are unwilling to make the wealthy come up with the resources to properly manage the crisis. Our lives will only get worse until we find ways to take the power to make such decisions out of their hands. The real violence isn't the demonstrations. Following the shooting of Jacob Blake in Kenosha, Wisconsin, tens of thousands of people took to the streets around the country to protest this latest violence at the hands of the police. In Kenosha, the night sky was aglow as buildings, cars, and trash dumpsters burned. Trump quickly launched his fear-mongering, using the backdrop of some burning buildings to denounce those who took to the streets as terrorists. He continued his attack on Black Lives Matter and those he calls anarchists, calling for quote-unquote law and order. In a number of cities, right-wing groups responded to Trump's call. In Kenosha, a right-wing vigilante group, armed with a variety of weapons, occupied rooftops and stood in front of buildings where demonstrations were taking place. Their presence was accepted by the police, who are seen in one video welcoming them and giving them bottled water. These self-appointed defenders of the community were joined by a 17-year-old armed with an assault rifle. At one point, he had a confrontation with 36-year-old Joseph Rosenbaum and, emboldened by his weapon, opened fire and shot Rosenbaum multiple times, killing him. He fled the scene, pursued by some who had witnessed the killing. When he fell in the street, they attempted to disarm him. He responded by shooting two people, killing Anthony Huber, 26, and wounding Geiger Grosskreutz, 26, who was working as a medic. He then got up and walked away, carrying his rifle in plain sight. 
Cops and vehicles entering the scene only told him to get out of the street. Ann Coulter, of Fox News and other right-wing media, called him a hero, saying, quote, I want him as my president, unquote. This celebration of vigilante violence has been led by the terrorist-in-chief, Donald Trump, who said that the killings in Kenosha looked like self-defense to him. The following week, as part of his ongoing campaign against those he calls terrorists, Trump went to Kenosha. He praised the police and expressed sympathy for those whose businesses were burned. But he made no mention of Jacob Blake, who was shot in the back multiple times at close range as he reached into his car where his three young children were sitting. Four days after the shooting in Kenosha, in response to Trump's call for an end to demonstrations in Portland, a caravan of hundreds of vehicles drove through central Portland. Some people rode in the backs of trucks, shooting protesters with paintball guns and spraying them with pepper spray. Trump applauded their actions and tweeted videos of the attacks. When a supporter of Patriot Prayer, a right-wing group, was shot and killed in an altercation in Portland, Trump blamed the Democratic Party politicians there for not maintaining order. The tensions that have built up due to the mishandling of the COVID-19 pandemic and the resulting economic crisis burst into the streets with the police murder of George Floyd and unleashed a massive response to the conditions of society that have been ignored for too long. Police violence is not new. This year, more than 660 people have been killed by the police, approximately the same number as last year. But little or nothing was done, and the police knew they could get away with murder. Many politicians shrugged off people marching in the streets, or promised investigations, but when property was damaged, they sat up and listened. They are all well-schooled in the values of this society. To them, property matters, not black lives. These government officials are well aware of the violence of this society. They accept the racism and poverty that disproportionately affects black people and other people of color. It is reflected in the statistics that they collect, the tens of millions of people who are currently unemployed, millions of whom will not be called back to work, and the more than 40 million people who cannot pay their rent and face eviction despite the current amnesty, because they will not be able to pay their rent when the amnesty ends. And many utility companies are threatening shutoffs as winter approaches. Tens of millions of people are facing food insecurity, and more than 40 million adults do not have adequate health insurance. To those who occupy positions of power, these are just the facts of life in the system they maintain. But poverty is violence. It produces the street violence and the suicides and drug addictions, borne out by the despair this society produces. And now, more than 186,000 people are dead because of the lack of an effective response to the spread of COVID-19. There is little wonder that tensions are flaring. Trump and others fanned the flames of discontent, claiming that people responding to the racism and other injustices of this society are the problem. Trump, Coulter, and others encouraged the racism and white supremacy that run deep in this society. And we are seeing the outcome with the encouragement of these groups and individuals. According to the Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism, 27 homicides have been committed that are connected to far-right extremists in the U.S. since 2019. This doesn't include the recent murders in Kenosha. People are right to take to the streets in protest, but we are going to have to do more than make demands on a system that will not respond to that which it does not value, the lives of all of us. We are not alone in our disgust and anger about the situation we find ourselves in. When we look around the world, we see people like ourselves in the streets confronting the inequities of the system they live under, from Hong Kong to Belarus, South Africa, Lebanon, Bulgaria, Mali, and elsewhere. Everywhere it is the same system and the same fight. We have the possibility to join the struggle and use the power we have as workers to bring this society to a stop. 
With our collective power, we can also create the possibility to leave the misery and the tragedies of the world we live in behind and open the path to a new future. The choice is ours. Our website is speakoutsocialists.org. You can find us on Facebook at Speak Out Now or on Instagram and Twitter at Rev Socialists. Thanks for listening.